Good morning, everyone. This is Seth Itzcan with Soil for Climate, and I'm here with my colleague and mentor, the great Alan Savory, um, the uh, inventor of holistic management and holistic plant grazing. And, um, and it's a great honor for me to be here at his home in Florida. And um, his wife and colleague, Jody Butterfield, is also here with us. And, um, and uh, we're really looking forward to today's interview where we'll be discussing the role of holistic management in helping to uh, reverse global warming. And um, uh, first, I just wanna get some, just, just some logistics. We wanna, before we actually dig into it, we wanna sort of, um, it has to go live and we have to share it. Um, so I'm asking if people are seeing this now um, in real time that they you know, share it in various other places. Uh, the commenting, the questions, we will take questions through the comment window associated with this video. And, um, and so if you uh, post your questions here, um, then the, the various moderators who are, will be reading your questions and will be fielding them. About at least half of this interview will be dedicated to answering questions that come through the Facebook feed. Um, a quick question, Jody, do you, do you, do you see it? Mm -hmm. uh, you have seen it and you are able to share it at this point to the various other groups. Um, okay then, so, so let's get started. So uh, I'm here with Alan Savory. Alan, it's a, a pleasure as always. Um, so, um, so basically we're just gonna talk a little bit about you know, soil and climate, but, but a, large of it, a large part of this is really gonna be based on holistic management or sort of the holistic framework or, or really a different type of management to address these questions of complexity. Um, so there's the science, of course, of climate and drawdown, and you know we're, we're eyeball deep in that, but, but there really is a larger issue which is about complexity itself and, and, how, and how do we manage in this era of, of all of these issues, food, climate, land management, human migration, politics, all of that. And, and ultimately that's the contribution, if you, if you will, that, uh, that holistic management can be most valuable for. It isn't just about grazing and soil, it's really much more than that. And, and we wanna allow Alan the time to have that broader conversation. Um, so Alan, why don't we just turn the camera over to you and, and you know, tell our loving audience, um, Hi, everyone. you know, <laughs> what, what, is, what is holistic management and what is its role in your opinion in terms of addressing the, the climate crisis? Well, you began to say it there, we, we've got a climate crisis, but we've also got a global desertification one. Um, and we've also got many uh, things going on in the, in the world. And you can try to solve these one by one. For example, it's very essential that we stop the rapid burning of fossil fuels. And everybody that's sane knows that today, all right? But if you stop that, you are not going to address climate change. This, that has got next to nothing to do with global desertification, which is a major contributor to climate change. And then even if you solve that, you have the major problem of mainstream agriculture that should be based on the biological sciences, but because of complexity in institutions and what are called wicked problems in institutions, they do not behave like a human, 
we have agriculture that's based on chemistry and marketing of technology. And that is the most extractive, destructive industry ever in the history of mankind, more destructive even than coal and oil uh, in terms of soil loss, damage, societies, communities, poverty, etc. So either we try to solve these problems piecemeal, one by one, or we need to recognize that they're all coming from a, a common source. And I think that's the contribution that our work uh, brings to the table in that all the people tackling aspects of these problems, we can make their work successful. Because if they don't address the root cause of global desertification, climate change, even national parks in my part of Africa, where I live much of the time, are major contributors now to climate change, poverty, human habitat destruction, biodiversity loss. So either we try and deal with these bits and pieces, or we have a major paradigm change and recognize that they're all flowing from the same source, which is current and universal management that is reductionist in a holistic world. So we, we're recognizing increasingly that uh, the worldview needs to change from a mechanistic worldview to a holistic worldview. And that's the contribution we bring it to it is how to actually do what is required. I read many books uh, where I cannot find myself disagreeing with a single thing the author says right through the book. And it's what we need to do to restore our communities, our agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. And I find myself in agreement with every point uh, because it's scientifically sound in every way that I know it is sound thinking. But when I put the book down at the end, I say, so what? Because there wasn't one word anywhere on how to do it. It was what we need to do. And many people, if you think about that, are talking about what we need to do, but don't really know how to do it. So, so Alan, um, explain to the audience, and you know, in your words, what is holistic management? And how will that help us to reverse the desertification and, and mitigate the climate crisis? Well, let me back off to that, just to, to fundamentals, just strip it down to first principles. The most fundamental thing that I think everybody viewing this can agree is that if you do not address the cause of a problem, you will not solve the problem, All right? So if we're gonna to come to holistic management to understand its importance, we first need to understand what is causing global desertification, destabilization of the climate, mass immigration to Europe, national parks even contributing, as I said, to climate change. What is causing all this? Now, do we have hundreds of different things causing it? Or is there a possibility one thing could be causing it? Well, to cut to the chase, there is only one cause. So where people are blaming livestock or coal and oil, no, those are resources that will be needed for centuries to come, all right? So what we've got to tackle is the management, the, the actual management that decides to burn fossil fuels at a rapid rate, causing damage to the world, or to run livestock, as we've done for thousands of years, causing desertification. So the coal or the oil or the livestock are not the cause of the problem, it is the management 
that manages them in a way that puts masses of carbon into the atmosphere, makes the rainfall less effective all over the world. That is what we need to address. So when we come down to that then and look at the management, we find that there are thousands of different ways you can manage. So if you go into Harvard or anywhere else and look at the libraries, uh, bookshops and so on, you'll see endless books on management. There's so many ways of managing, dictatorially, scientifically, democratically, whatever you like. So if we've got thousands of ways of management, how does it help us to say management is the cause of the problem? You see, you, you're back with confusion at that point because which management are you to change? Which is faulty? So what I did in the years of struggling to understand this problem and to find a way of solving it was I, in effect, came down to very basic first principles again and just looked at every way there was known in management and started peeling the onion. Because at the end of the day, in any management, you have to take an action. And if you keep peeling the onion in every management process in the world, you come to exactly the same core. And it is a genetically inherited core that all two using animals have, including humans. And there's the cause of it. And there are two flaws in that cause. So now, coming back to your question, what is holistic management? It is the holistic management framework and it's slight adjustments, two main adjustments to the core framework that all humans use. And immediately we do that, management ceases to be reductionist or mechanistic in a holistic world, and it becomes holistic. And the same people uh, can begin to solve the problems. It makes every organization that's trying to solve the problems more effective, etc. I, I actually uh, love an ad that used to appear on television. I think it was BASF, a chemical company, and we used to see it in, on American television. And they said, we do not make the tennis balls you use. We make them bounce higher. We do not make the dresses you use. We make them brighter. We do not make the carpets you use. We make them last longer. And I love that because that's the way people need to look at the holistic management framework. It makes all of our efforts successful. Whereas if we keep on doing what we are and we debate and discuss different practices, we will just be in what is called incremental change. It'll take another century or more. And I don't think the Greta Thunbergs and the young people of this world have got the luxury of time. I think we need to start looking at the root cause of the problem. That's what we've done. That's what holistic management does. So that, uh, to, to try to round that off, I would just say, what is wrong in conventional mainstream management? The two glitches. Um, the first, let me cover the least important of them, is that there is no tool in the scientist's toolbox, in society's toolbox, that can address global desertification. Now that I covered in a TED talk uh, when I said there is no option but to introduce another tool, which is animals, large animals, mainly livestock, uh, without which we cannot address that problem. So in our mainstream uh, thinking, all right, uh, we 
have to use a tool at the end of the day. Uh, you cannot even drink water today unless you go to a river and drink with your hands and your mouth without using technology. So we use technology to do anything. I cannot convert a tree into furniture without picking up an axe. I have to use some tool, no amount of creativity, no amount of thought, no, no amount of thinking holistically, no amount of money, no amount of labor can do anything with that tree until I pick up a tool. Right, so what tools do humans have to address climate change? We have technology and that we can use, and we have got to use to find alternatives to fossil fuels as energy sources, right? We can solve that problem. Now, what other tools do we have? We've had technology for over a million years, starting with sticks and stones. We could sharpen the sticks. We could chip the stones. We could not change our environment. And then we got the tool of fire and we could melt the stones and technology took off on steroids and we could explore space. We could use the computer we're using and everything we're using right now, right? So for 99.9% .9 of human existence, we've had technology and fire. It is impossible to address climate change and global desertification with only technology and fire. And you could train in any university and any profession in the world and you'll be trained to use technology and fire. Now, about 10,000 years ago, We've got to stretch it a bit to call it a tool, but we can because it's a positive application. We developed the idea of conservation, resting the environment to let it recover, which is today embodied in conservation. All right, so now we have three tools. And of those three tools, two of them cause desertification. So you see why in our mainstream reductionist management policies, thinking of today, it is simply impossible to address global desertification and thus climate change ultimately. So we have no option there. Now, the other thing that the other flaw in our framework <clears throat> is even with the most sophisticated interdisciplinary teams of scientists who are fully aware that say a policy will have social consequences, environmental consequences, uh, economic consequences. When we put together that integrated scientific team and we get all the people with the appropriate expertise because we know it'll have these consequences, watch what they do, and they will reduce the problem, be it drugs in America or noxious weeds invading or any problem of this sort, they will reduce the problem uh, or the complexity to the problem. And that is why it is reductionist. So even though I don't know most of the people viewing me talking right now, but I know that in all of your lives, I, I can guarantee that if you made every decision in your life, maybe a couple of them not so, but you made them to meet a need or a desire or to solve a problem. And you cannot reduce the complexity of our families, our humans, human behavior, our institutions, our organizations, our politics and everything, and climate change and so on. You cannot reduce the complexity of that problem to meeting a need, a desire, or solving a problem as the context or reason for an action. So what does the holistic framework bring to the table? It brings to the table the idea that in any management situation or developing a policy, you develop the people involved, develop one overarching single 
holistic context. And that embodies how the people want their lives to be based on their deepest spiritual, cultural values, um, how those lives will have to be sustained for generations, for hundreds of years by the environment, what condition will their environment have to be in for that to happen. And essentially it ties how we want our lives to be to our life supporting environment, because ultimately no organism can exist if its habitat is destroyed. And we are destroying human habitat, not just wildlife habitat, we're destroying human habitat. So it brings that concept of using a single holistic context where there's total agreement, no compromise. It unifies people. It gets rid of a lot of the conflict that is caused by the reductionist framework. And then it brings in an additional tool, livestock to be used where essential, where nothing else can reverse man-made desertification. I, I don't know if we can ever, as you said at the beginning, reverse climate change. That creeps into our languaging. Uh, I only like to talk really about reversing man-made global desertification and addressing climate change. I think that's about the best well, I'm uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I hope that helped answer some of your points. That's great. Alan, um, can you talk a little bit about how holistic management and the holistic context is used in Zimbabwe with livestock to reverse desertification in Zimbabwe, specifically at, at your center? There? Well, the only, only difference there with the 50-odd holistic management locally-led hubs there are around the world on six continents, they're all doing essentially the same thing, just managing holistically. The difference is in the Zimbabwe case, it was the first where not only are we working where the whole idea originated, but we are working without any fencing division of land. We have millions of hectares of land, unfenced, vast national parks, hunting areas, forests around us, communal lands around us with not a single fence. Uh, we are reversing the desertification with elephants and buffalo and giraffe and sable and kudu and bushbuck and diker and impala and zebra and all the wildlife of Africa. And we're doing it by herding the livestock. And the, the results have been phenomenally encouraging. Uh, we're in our 16th year of poor rains. This year was the worst any of us can recall. And we literally and I'm not exaggerating, we cannot keep pace with the production of the land now. Now that could be duplicated all around the world. And that is not being duplicated to my knowledge on most ranches using fencing uh, because it is so difficult with fencing to actually change the behavior of the animals. And the, the main tool when we use the animal as a tool, the main thing is not the mouth of the animal, it's the feet. Um. Alan, can you um, show the audience some of the books that you have in your library that were influential? Well, you, you and I were discussing them. Yeah, these are some that have influenced me greatly. I, I mean, the first, people often uh, say I've got a theory or they're critical of my theory. I don't have a theory. I, I just used uh, this, Holism and Evolution by Jan Smuts, written in 1926. It's very heavy reading. But um, I've read that two or three times and really just worked on his theory. 
many people don't know of smuts today. I'm, I believe I've read uh, elsewhere that Einstein was very familiar with Smuts's work. They used to correspond. And apparently Einstein said there were two constructs uh, that he believed in the world would have major impact on the world. One obviously was his own theory of relativity. And the second was Smuts's concept of holism and evolution. And I think we're going to shift in worldview to that concept that the natural world that we are trying to uh, manage and live in is has no parts, no connections, those are mechanistic concepts. It is only made up of whole atoms, whole molecules, whole, no matter what you go up to level, uh, all of the people listening to me are whole humans, but there's colonies of cells and more, most of those cells are bacteria, but they're still uh, part of you. And then whole blood cells, whole, whole molecules, whole cells, whole organs, whole human. And if you're upset, you don't feel it in your mind, you feel it all through your body because you're whole. And so it is throughout nature. So that's influenced me enormously. A lot of your work today uh, is focusing on soils. But as I've been saying to you, you'd be arrogant if we talk to you first. Uh, Albert Howard preceded us over a hundred years ago, pointing out the tremendous importance of the soils. I value this book uh, enormously. It was given to me when Sir Frank Fraser Darling spent six weeks with me in Africa uh, when I was a young uh, biologist freshly out of university. And he's, he's actually uh, autographed it to me here, thanking me for a long Ulenda or safari. And this was his personal copy of uh, Soil Conditions and Plant Growth by Sir John Russell. This is over a hundred years old, all right? And we're talking today as though we're just discovering the importance of the soil. No, all these things have been going on long before us. And then, as you know, I, uh, in trying to understand the and solve the livestock problem, I used a, a lot of the thinking of uh, Andre Vosin in grass productivity. And then so many people don't go back to the original work and they uh, plagiarize and mimic and copy. And I've seen that happening to Wazan a great deal. So my wife and I had this book republished in the United States so people could go back to the original work. So I, I value deeply some of these original books from which helped me a great deal to begin to get the principles right uh, to reach the point which we have today. Excellent, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. I'm bringing myself back on the camera for a minute here. Um, just to also remind people, this is a, a Soil for Climate interview with Alan Savory, the inventor of holistic management and holistic plant grazing. And uh, just a little bit of my own background. Uh, you know, I got into this from the climate side. And so just so people sort of understand that Alan is now talking about a much bigger picture. It's not just about climate or, or desertification. It's really about holistic management in general as sort of a new paradigm for how, um, you know, we, we live on this planet and with each other, you know, we're in a new era now. And uh, it, it, even for me, it took a while to kind of, you know, I want to say, no, it's about soil and climate and grazing. He's like, no, no, it's much bigger than that. So that's even, that's even our own little, um, struggle, if you will. So, well, what is the narrative? What are we really talking about? Um, you know, from the 
soil for climate. Well, it's in the name. We're talking about soil for climate, you know, but Alan reminds me, but that, that's, even that's not good enough. You know, you, the, the whole management of the, the conversation has to be within a holistic context. And, and I realize this is sort of difficult for people to hear. It was even for me, but, um, but, but, but do make the effort. And I've made my own um, sort of a, a holistic a context for myself. It's just a private thing for myself that I've made, but I've done it. I've gone through the exercise and I encourage people to do that. Um, uh, in terms of the science, in terms of just literally the, the, the physics and the biology, soil is an important uh, reservoir for carbon. And if we are going to mitigate, if not reverse global warming, we are going to have to restore soil all over the world. The, the science supports it. The math is there. The drawdown numbers are there. There's great research that's being done by Richard Teague and others, and you'll be seeing more of it in, in, in the next couple of years. Uh, the Soil for Climate uh, files area in our Facebook group has tons of peer-reviewed, cited papers um, that, that discuss this. So yes, we will continue to advocate for that soil for climate from the, from the pure sort of physics of sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. But the reality in terms of how humans are going to do it, um, you know, requires the holistic management part that, that Alan has been talking about. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say something else too. So um, uh, Alan, uh, I want you to, to talk a little bit about um, the, your sort of discovery of, of the holistic framework and, and you know, the, the, that, the, the pieces that, that, that led to that. And that uh, Alan was telling me earlier, that was in 1984, after years of trying to solve the problem of environmental degradation. And of course, 1984, well, people my generation, we grew up, uh, you know, the, the book by George Orwell, 1984, right? This dystopian future. And then, and then when, uh, the Mac, when Apple released the Macintosh, their ad was, why 1984 won't be like 1984? Because of the Macintosh. And, and it's interesting, the Macintosh now is really sort of a metaphor for communications and using technology to make a better world. And, uh, and then that's also the same year that Alan came up with the, the, the holistic management. So it's sort of interesting, we kind of flipped the idea of 1984 being a bad thing into being a good thing. So, so anyway, tell us just a, a little bit about, you know, about your discovery uh, in, in 1984. And then we want to take questions. So we do see the questions are coming in and we will uh, start answering them uh, immediately after this part. Yeah, I, I don't like that word discovery. I developed uh, yes. the holistic framework with the help of thousands of people that I've worked with uh, over the years. Uh, none of us knew what we were really looking for. I, they, we didn't have the buzzwords, desertification and climate change. And none of us knew what we were looking for. I was just trying to solve the problem of inevitable mass environmental degradation wherever humans uh, went, it seems. And I thought we'd solved it in the late 60s and 70s with the planned raising process that I developed uh, expanding on Wazan's work. And when I realized that we could not solve the problem with livestock alone, I mean wildlife alone, and we had to use livestock. And so I uh, looked at all the different uh, techniques of planning in the world, settled on the military one as the most experienced centuries of experience of planning a, a very complicated situation. I thought I was dealing with complexity, but I wasn't. So we had over a hundred places that were very successful on five countries in Africa by the late 1970s. 
and uh, we thought we were there. Then I was forced into exile, came to the United States and had to spend four years here before I could go home. When I could get home, I found that every single one of those projects had reverted back, failed, etc. So something was still missing. And when I analyzed all of the cases I, as I did, I found it wasn't the planning process that had caused the problem, it was me. I had not understood complexity and I hadn't solved the problem of how to deal with complexity. I had omitted the cultural, the social, the economic aspects in, in the training I was doing with people. And so we had to go back to the drawing board. Fortunately at that time, uh, the American government had engaged me, was paying me very handsomely to put 2,000 people through training over a two-year period from the World Bank, USAID, American universities, the main government agencies. All of those people helped me a great deal in developing. But the idea of a holistic framework, none of us had. And that came about by accident. And as so often things do, there was a knock on my door. I was living in San Angelo at the time, and it was Professor Steger from Angelo State University. I was surprised to see him because the universities were so antagonistic to my work and were saying it was anathema to them. And so I invited him to come in and have a drink, find out what it was about. And he, he said, look, I've come to talk to you because he said, we don't understand what you're doing. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, three times you've visited our research station. We've shown you the work we're doing and you just look at it and look at us and you predict the result. You don't ask for the data. You don't ask for any of the data we've gathered. You just tell us the result and you leave. And he said, each time we have ridiculed you because what sort of scientist doesn't even look for the data? He just tells you what the result's going to be of experiments. And uh, he said, but every time exactly what you're saying happens. He said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, let me try to explain to you. And as I tried to explain to him, I could see the confused look on his face. So I grabbed a bit of paper and a pencil and I began to draw blocks representing ecosystem processes, water cycle, mineral cycle, the four processes I'd never ever seen in one place. Leopold had two of them, other people had three and so on. And I put all four down there. And then I said, these are really one process, like looking in four windows. Then I put the tools that humans have and I started drawing lines and talking about the influence at different types of environments around the world. And I said, when I look at your research, all I'm looking at is the land, what sort of environment you're in, how do plants decay in that environment? And you tell me what research you're doing, but you're telling me what tools you're applying to that land. I know what the tendency will be in that environment. So I just can predict what the outcome will be. And as I drew these lines and everything else, I still didn't get it over to him. And I think he left as confused as when he came. Thankfully, Jody was in the room watching. And when he left, she said, you need to capture that. Nobody understands how your mind is unraveling these situations. And so I used that bit of paper and it was our first very primitive framework. So now I had it on paper. And I used it in the teaching that I was doing with thousands of people, as I say, and scientists. And with each group, 
what they didn't understand could be quickly clarified, corrected. So the framework developed rapidly after that. And by 1984, we had the final piece in place, the holistic concept idea. That concept was so new, we didn't know what we were looking for. It wasn't in any religion, any branch of science, any philosophy in the world. How could you have one overarching context or reason for all management in, in any situation? So when that piece fell into place, that, that was 1984. That's why I say, finally, we reached the point where we can predict the results uh, if you practice, if you follow the processes. And then in some of the groups that I was training with, we began to, and that's when the word holistic came into the uh, name of the, the grazing and framework. And then with some of the groups, what we began to do is to, in, in the training, spend one hour every day trying everything we could find flaws in the logic or the science. And in the early days, we found a few flaws that helped us correct things. And then towards the end, we, we just didn't find any. And then uh, right at the end of that training, I was breaking groups into eight, 10 people, whatever, small groups, and then just saying to them, well, let's treat this as a hypothesis. It's not, it's management of complexity, but let's treat it as a hypothesis. Do you fully understand what the process is? Everybody did by then. And I said, no, you've got unlimited time, theoretically cause it to fail. Because if we can theoretically cause this to fail, it is going to fail in practice. So we'll know something is missing still. And we could not get people to even theoretically cause it to fail. So uh, I see 84 is about the pivotal year. From there on, we have known how to deal with complexity. Now we can refine the process, develop better and better, but basically we knew how to fly, if I could put it that way. Right. Um, and Alan, um, continue for the audience. Uh, the conversation that you and I had earlier about how global warming is now the unifying uh, narrative around the world in which holistic management will be most effective. Well, I see it as, as, as the last piece that needed. When I wrote with uh, Dodi and Sam Bingham, who, who worked with me, the first edition of the book Holistic Management, if you read the conclusion of that, and I think we included in the second and so on, um, I said that if we'd been concerned in the Roman times or whenever, when Herodotus was deeply concerned with the breakdown of the granary of the Roman Empire, which was the North African uh, coast, and he started describing the heavy black soils that were eroding away and droughts and floods were increasing, etc. If we'd been very concerned then, there's nothing we could have done about it uh, because we didn't know Australia existed. We didn't know the Americas existed. We didn't know humans had already got there. We didn't know that they had already destroyed 80% of the genera of animals and replaced their role with fire. So we couldn't have done anything about it. Now, when we tail end of the last millennium, the pieces finally fell into place. We, we finally had know how to address complexity. We knew about the existence of the whole world. Now, prior to that, we didn't have the technology. Because, for instance, uh, we wouldn't have known about carbon in the atmosphere. We didn't have the, the technology to measure it. We wouldn't have known about ozone holes in the atmosphere. We didn't have the technology to measure it. So at the tail end of the last millennium, we finally had the knowledge how to correct it. We knew the whole globe was affected. We had the technology to know these things. 
but we were still missing some things. And one of those was the ability to communicate right around the world as team humanity. We got that with the internet, for good and for bad, but we can now communicate rapidly. Whereas in all my early years, it was letters and telexes and things. Now we can communicate rapidly. So we had another ingredient to solving this on a global scale. We were still lacking one thing. If you studied us historically, we have only united in times of war. So we will unite in times of war to fight a common enemy. But the moment the war is over, we're back to fighting each other. So that's how human nature has been. And so I kept thinking there's going to be something essential to unite humans, to, to get us beyond this mentality of, of fighting each other all the time. So I expressed it as the last war that will ever be fought, the greatest and last war that will ever be fought, the war to learn to live with ourselves and our environment in harmony, to live with ourselves and our environment in harmony. But we needed something to unite us in that war. And the only thing I could see emerging was climate change. And I think that's beginning to happen with the movement of the youth of today, the Greta Thunbergs and the millions of other young people that are so deeply concerned. They're beginning to unite us as team humanity to get on and solve this problem. Alan, I want to thank you so much for that. I just want to get back in here for a second. It really is an honor to be working with you in any capacity as part of Team Humanity um, uh, to be addressing the problem of climate change and global warming. And I agree with Alan, it is the uniting um, narrative issue in the world today that, that we're all facing. And, uh, and um, we came at this initially you know, from the soil climate side, but Alan is reminding us there's, there's a bigger narrative here about uh, a holistic management. We're really, we're entering a new era. And, and you could think of someone like, like Greta Thornburg as really the, the beginning of the, the holistic um, ge generation or the generation for which um, the whole planet has to begin to work in a new framework. And so again, she's coming to it from the climate side as I was and as we were, because that is the, the global story, if you will, um, but how is that going to be managed? And that's where the holistic management comes from. So, you know, we're all learning. We're, 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 I'm learning right now during this talk, I'm learning. Um, so let's start to take questions now. Um, and the rest of this uh, interview will be taking questions from, the, from our comment. So Jody, why don't you just, um, just shout out? You can okay. just, just shout it out, whatever it is. Okay. Um, this one is just, uh, I'm talking to someone currently who accepts climate science, but believes we are already too far down the path so that he argues it's futile to try to slow it down or stop it. I don't believe that it's futile, but I recognize that we need to work fast. How fast can we implement holistic management to achieve measurable results? The, the, it's never too late, never hopeless, never ever give up, never ever ever give up. And that uh, I believe in. Now, if we're going to deal with this in a timely manner for the young people of the world to give them a hope, then I believe the way to do it is to address it at the root cause. If we address it as a, a com compilation of many, many problems, as we talked of earlier, we can guarantee another half century to a century of debate, discussion, argument, 
over different agricultural practices, different forms of energy, all the things that humans argue and, and fight about. If we address it at the root cause, which is the reductionist management, reductionist development of policies, then I think no scientist in the world can argue that. And I think that gives humans, young people, a fighting chance that we can begin very rapidly to drastically change the situation. When I say no scientist can argue that, I don't believe any scientist can argue in favor of continuing with reductionist management. It just doesn't make sense to continue with reductionist management when we have the option of managing holistically in a worldview that is changing. So if we can agree on that, then everything can change uh, rapidly because you're beginning to address all of the problems simultaneously, uh, virtually. If we do it piece by piece, I think it's going to be too late. Yep. Okay, what would a holistic economy or a holistic system of government look like? There isn't such a thing. Okay, what, what would it look like? It wouldn't. Okay, it's, okay. it's down. I'm having right. fun with you. Yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you're misusing the word holistic. Okay, in the, the first government to manage holistically, to develop policies holistically, would almost be in power for all time because people are desperate for good governments. The main reason that governments change and keep changing is because their policies are unsound. And there is no government in the world at the moment that can make policies sound because every government in the world develops policy in the same way. They bring in teams of scientists, teams of experts, lobbyists, etc., uh, pressure groups, all of these brought together. They reduce the problem, whatever the problem is, terrorism, drugs, noxious weeds, desertification, climate. They reduce that social web of complexity, economic web of complexity to the problem with these teams. And the unintended consequences are so normal that economists actually refer to the law of unintended consequences. And you get a new government in, people clap and applaud, give it six months and we want to throw them out and bring in another government. I didn't realize the full significance of policies and why they make it so difficult for any government to stay in power ever because they're unsound. I did not realize that till I was personally president of a political party, facing general election, etc. And at that point, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is what governments do, develop policies. And I haven't any idea how to do it. Neither does anybody in the world. And I often quote Mugabe, much maligned Mugabe, when he was prime minister of Zimbabwe and trying desperately to do the right things when our long civil war ended, he made a speech that I think was extremely wise. He said, we do not have a bigger problem than our rising population and our deteriorating environment. And he said, we politicians don't know what to do. That is so true. There isn't a politician in the world that knows what to do. He said, all we can do is take the advice of our experts, but when it goes wrong, we get the blame. And that is true of every politician in the world. So what's step one? Step one is to get the public, the public to insist that their governments develop policies holistically. The moment the public insists on that, governments can change, will change, and you will see a very different world. 
Have you have you ever seen evidence of that? Have, has there ever been a group no, that has tried to engage with elected officials around Palestine? There have been many who have tried to engage. Earlier, we were talking about the American government engaging me over two years to put 2,000 people through training. These were professors and you know scientists of various levels and various fields and everything. Now, those people in training brought hundreds of their own policies to the training. Using the holistic framework, they analyzed their own policies, not me doing it, them. They concluded every single policy was unsound, without exception, and would lead to unintended consequences. One group in training, and you can read the sentence in the first textbook I published, said, we now recognize that unsound resource management is universal in the United States. Frankly, it's the same for every government. Now, if your government is universally having unsound policies dealing with complexity, you see why no government can stay in power. Because the public is dissatisfied with those policies. So you look at anyone here, I mean, like, just take drug policy. America used, I'm sure, all the best experts they could to develop a drug policy. What is the result? Drug use increased and violence spread across borders and even spread to Africa, and it's still spreading. Didn't stop drug use. What's the policy on noxious weeds? Developed by thousands of good scientists. And what's the effect? Noxious weeds have increased. We spend over $1 billion every year, have done for 40 years I've been here. We've never killed a single weed species in a single state. We've poisoned the water, poisoned the environment, increased cancer and all sorts of diseases, wasted a billion dollars every year, and we just keep doing it. It doesn't matter what policy you pick. So the change will be rapid when the public insists that policies change. Because when we did all that training with all those government people, what was the institutional response? The planning was that if there was a big demand and if the bulk of them liked it, we would develop an American training center. That was the agreement I had with the government. That was the planning. The result was when all those people found that policies were unsound, etc. the result was all future training was banned and it set us back 30 years. We still, none of us understood that institutions are complex and institutions do not behave like a human being behaves and institutions cannot change until the public insists. Um, Alan, just a quick interjection here. Myself and other colleagues are, are working on what's called healthy soils legislation. And there's sort of a healthy soils legislation movement that's happening at the state level. And um, I'm gonna make an effort to, to have holistic planning and, 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 and insistence on holistic management be part of that effort itself. So that's something we can continue afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's admirable. And, uh, but if you've just got the government to develop policies holistically, then that would happen okay. and lost. Okay, well, we'll follow up on that. Jody, um, I, I wonder if you wanna say the person's name okay. who that's asking. Okay, so, <clears throat> sorry, I didn't do that. Uh, Carl Rosenberg is asking something right in line with this. How can we convince our local governments to holistically graze and not burn natural areas in non-brittle environments? Well, again, he's talking about how can we convince an institution our local government. You cannot convince an institution. There is not 
a single case I can find throughout history where any institution has changed ahead of the public opinion. When new scientific insights are involved or managerial insights, as in this case, if there are paradigm shifting new insights, institutions, it's a wicked problem of institutions, cannot change. That's why not even a single cattleman's organization has yet supported me. That's why not a single environmental organization has yet supported me. Well, we, su we support you no. when we're an organization. Yeah, you're very small. Well, well, okay. You started with it. All right. <laughs> but I've even had organizations that I formed throw me out of it. Because that's how organizations behave. It's, it's natural. We go on to the next yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, you wanted to just rapid fire questions. Okay, here. one more. And from Dylan Wicks in Australia. With the drought becoming such a widespread issue in this country and the oddly rising prices of rural property, what would your advice be for people starting from ground zero who want to become like you, doing the work you do? Well, it, it would be to, to get involved. Very fortunately, there's an Australian uh, hub and there are hundreds of people in Australia already doing good work, just get involved with them. And if you take it from your individual family point of view, just develop a holistic context. How do you want your life to be? You and your family, how do you want your lives to be? Tie that to your life supporting environment and then start to make your decisions that way. And if you're short of capital and so on, you might begin by leasing land or whatever it is. Or if you're just a city person, you'll begin to change your life uh, towards a holistic context for yourself. And as a more informed citizen, when you get policy to change, then it will change for all ranchers and farmers and people all over Australia. Okay, a um, uh, question from Caleb Williams. Can you describe the change, uh, why the change from the holistic goal to the holistic context? Yeah, because that was one of my mistakes. I've made many mistakes and I've learned a lot from them. And that was one, I, I called it, we, I said earlier, we, we had a totally new concept, not in any branch of science, religion, or philosophy. So I had to give it a name. It was a reason or context uh, for all decisions in, in a government or, or a company or a, a farm family or whatever. And so I called it a holistic goal, one word not two words, holistic wasn't an adjective, right? Now, what happened was people heard the word goal and they treated it as a goal to be achieved. No, the holistic context is not a goal to be achieved. It is a context or reason for all your decisions as you meet needs and desires and solve problems. So that wasn't working. And uh, even people who had trained a lot with me, I was seeing major blunders because they were calling it a goal in their minds, even if not in words. And so we went to holistic context uh, to correct that. And, and that has helped a lot of people. And um, unfortunately, Jody tells me I can't invent words. Shakespeare could, but apparently a, a biologist can't because I would have called it a whole text. All right, next question uh, from uh, Michael Riley. 
If this is a mostly agricultural problem, how do people change their farming practices in a place like here in New Zealand, where farmers are pretty sure they're doing a great job? Well, first, it's not mostly an agricultural problem. This is a problem affecting national parks, affecting the oceans, affecting everything. It's, it's all facets of human life. Are, we're dealing with symptoms uh, of reductionist management. Now, coming to the New Zealand agricultural problem, it, it's New Zealand's problem is like everybody else's. Uh, the individuals can change. The individuals, there are already New Zealanders who've been working with us and training with us for years. They can change, begin to prove things on their own farms, their own lives. But in every country, it's the same issue. While people are trying to change at the farm level or the practicer level, you've got government policies from above forcing, in many cases, uh, wrongful practices. We see this in America, England. I saw a lot of this in Europe recently, where European Union policies are incredibly destructive and where I would ask farmers, why are you doing this when everybody knows it's wrong? And they would just say it's because of policies. So this is very common and New Zealand is riddled with that. So I can only say to you, begin to change on your own farm where you can and then begin to talk to other people till enough people in New Zealand are saying our government needs to develop policy holistically. And when you do, you will see phenomenal change and improvement throughout uh, New Zealand, not just in agriculture. Uh, question from Ed Bourgeois. What do we do in, world, in a world dominated uh, by reductionist scientists? How do you talk with them? You talk uh, with them as like any human beings because thousands of these reductionist scientists, of which I was one, uh, have helped me to develop holistic management. I've stood on the shoulders of many people, including people who failed in what they were doing. That failure taught me what didn't work because I was just seeking uh, something that would work. So just treat them as humans. The, the, uh, the, the difficulty is the institutions. Uh, for example, we talked of wicked problems earlier. You can put the most perfect people into an institution, but it does not behave like those people. So you can ask almost anybody in the United States, does it make sense for America to produce oil, to grow corn, to produce fuel for vehicles? And almost anybody will tell you that's stupid. Well, there are thousands of highly intelligent, good reduction of scientists paid by institutions who are doing that. And um, so just you can only treat people as individuals. And when enough individuals want to change institutions, well, I don't know what more to say. I'm grappling with the same problem. Okay, next question from Sarah Keel. What animals, wild and domesticated, can we utilize to restore habitats in the U.S.? Um, I, cows, yes, but what else? Chickens, pigs, etc. Yeah, any any animal. So you can use people are there are some good articles and so on coming out, and I see, saw something on the BBC just now, uh, well back on goats uh, producing grassland on rocky hills where it hadn't been, on goats uh, reducing the fire load in, in California. Nearly all of that you can trace back to the training I was doing in the 80s when something like 15,000 people came through my hands learning to use animals as a tool. 
as I said earlier, we have no option but to use animals as a tool. And that means wildlife, domestic stock, all of these animals. Now, for most purposes, the most easy and readily available is livestock. Cattle, sheep, goats, llamas, camels, pigs, uh, chickens, pigeons, whatever. But use animals. Okay. Um, this may be the last one from, um, let's see, it's from Tony Anton Antonino, or Tori Antonino. What do we tell our friends who say going vegan is needed to fix climate change? Well, the I wrote a blog on this, which you can easily get. It will help you if you want to, to get it. Seth can give it to you. Um, where the, Vegans are very sincere. And what I like about them is they're prepared to fight for what they believe. And that's very much how I've been. So I have a lot of respect for them on one hand. Uh, but uh, in that blog, I wrote that if you want to be vegan, and this is how you could talk to your friends, if you want to be vegan, please do so. It's your right if you believe it for spiritual or health reasons, if you believe it yourself. That is your right. But if you are doing it for the environment or for ethical reasons, then you're doing damage. That is a reductionist management, and the unintended consequence is you'll do great damage. It's unethical, and it does nothing but damage for the environment, the vilifying of, uh, of livestock and meat, etc. If you're going to vilify meat, don't vilify the meat. Vilify the management. Do you have more questions? No. Okay. Okay, hi, everyone. This is uh, Seth again uh, joining Alan. Alan, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for answering those questions. Can I go now? <laughs> no, not yet. Um, I, and I just want to be clear to the audience that uh, Soil for Climate is a nonprofit organization, and we do stand with Alan Savory and the Savory Institute and, and holistic management. And, um, and we do recognize that livestock are an essential tool or resource, whatever you want to call it, when managed properly for restoring soil. And restoring soil literally means to increase the soil carbon. And that carbon is only coming from one place, it's coming from the atmosphere. And I have personally uh, seen the benefits of this myself. Um, if you go to the banner graphic on top of the Soil for Climate Facebook group, you'll, you'll see the, 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 the banner images itself, two photographs, next to each other. They're both at the exact same spot. It, it's in, in Zimbabwe, what they call the two tree site, because there's sort of two trees next to each other. One picture was taken in 2004, the other was taken in 2014. It takes about 10 years to see really a profound, comprehensive change in a landscape. And you see it there. And, and they did that by increasing the livestock density fivefold. Not only did they not cut back on livestock, they have five times the amount that they have before. And of course, they're running properly. And now we have elephants we never had before oh. and buffalo we never had before. Right, right. And by the way, it doesn't take 14 years. We can get- It was 10 years in that example. We can get dramatic change in a year. In a year, okay, well, there you go. You heard it from the expert. The hell with a decade, you can do it in a year. So, um, so, so yes, yeah, so a couple of points, I'll just also from my side that these narratives come up, people talk about rewilding and, and uh, 
Uh, Alan will tell you, he actually is one of the people that invented that concept decades and decades ago, and he realizes that it was a mistake because it's still this idea of sort of pushing against livestock. But the, the, the wild uh, grazers, including the elephants and the, uh, the, the water buffalo and the impala on the land in Zimbabwe, where uh, their center is, is far greater now than it was before they started without any rewilding plan. They just managed the livestock properly. The grasses came back, the perennial grasses came back, the water table got replenished, there was more surface water. So the wildlife naturally happened anyway. And you know, the state park, the, 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 the national state park in Zimbabwe in Victoria Falls is literally like five or 10 kilometers away from, you know, from, you know, the, the, their center. And in a single day, which I've done, you can drive to the official park and it's just like a desert and there's no animals there at all. Of course, there's no grazing. There's no hunting allowed. And then you go to the Allen's um, uh, center, the Africa Center for Holistic Management, where there's tons of grazing done properly and you've got grass and you've got water and you've got much more wildlife and you've got elephants and everything else. So rewilding will happen naturally when we restore the landscape with the proper grazing methodology that Alan advocates for. Um, and, 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 you know, in terms of the actual science, in terms of how much carbon can you get in an acre of soil to 15 inches, and uh, there are great scientists are working on that. And in 2020, there will be a bunch of new uh, papers coming out. And, um, and, and you can find that information, you know, that particular uh, slice of this narrative, if you will, the part where soil is a reservoir for carbon and increasing it through through better land management. You know, our group will continue to focus on that. It looks like we have another question. Yeah. No, it's just people have been asking. Is this recorded? They want to share it. Oh, oh yes, yeah. So uh, the the beauty of Facebook, uh, this is all, it's automatically being recorded. That's just how these Facebook things work. So as soon as this is done, it it will it will be there. You can replay it and, and share it however you want. I just wanted to say something else. The Soil for Climate also is an organization. Um, we, we have a, 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 a partner organization in, uh, in, in Kenya called the Maasai Center for Regenerative Pastoralism. And, um, and we will be launching a project in December. So in a month and a half, I'm gonna be in Kenya with my colleague, uh, Dalmas Tiampati, and, and we will be we will be launching a project there doing ecological restoration using the, the, the practices of, of holistic management, holistic plan grazing. There is, a, there is a, a Savory Institute hub in Kenya and we've been there to get training and we will be implementing those. So I'm very excited about that. And, and you know, it's real, it's not theoretical. Like, like there are streams in that village in Kenya which, which are gonna run again and they're gonna run again because we've done proper grazing management. Um, okay, Alan, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there, please, any last words you want to share with our loving audience out there? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Okay, all right. No, thank you for, for listening. And thank you for the questions. Uh, Jody, was there any other last question? Or? No. Okay, all right, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, please, uh, if you would, you know, share the, the Soil for Climate message but also the, the holistic management message and, and you know, and, and, and Alan's work of, of regenerative grazing and, and, and proper uh, uh, management of- um, Still my work, it's thousands of people. Thousands now. of people's work. Okay, so we're, we're in a new era. And I just wanna say, you know, we stand with Greta Thornburg and 
Bill McKibben and, 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 and the climate movement and this new generation, we absolutely stand with them. The climate problem is a crisis. It's, it's, it's real. We have to stop doing uh, burning of fossil fuels, but we also have to draw carbon out of the air. Most of that carbon is going to go into soils. Most of it is going to get there on, on grasslands and rangelands through the use of livestock managed properly and, and, and the holistic uh, planning, the holistic framework is going to be an essential part of creating the context for all these different groups. That, to by manage the way, is why the savory Institute has the strategy of concentrating 